Julian Lin, who runs Best of Breed Growth Stocks, the investing group on Seeking Alpha, and Ramil Patel, who writes on Seeking Alpha. Really happy you are both joining us to talk about Zim stock in particular, and perhaps the shipping sector uh, a little bit as well. It's great to have you. Uh, Julian also runs Cannabis Growth Investors, so sometimes we talk about the cannabis sector. And we've had him on many times before talking about different sectors. So it's amazing how many sectors that you cover. And looking at Zimstock, it's hard to find a true bull. Julian is on record on Seeking Alpha as being a hold, and Ramil is on record as being a bear. But I want to do a deep dive onto how you're thinking about Zim in particular. So, Ramil, maybe we'll start with you, how you're thinking about the stock these days. Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, let me just give you know real quick overview. I mean, most viewers are probably going to be familiar with what, um, what Zim does, but a real quick overview for those who aren't. Um, it's an Israeli cargo shipping company um, that um, it's been around for many, many decades. Uh, but it just recently, more recently, IPO'd in January of 2021. Um, and the IPO um, was, it, it went from anything, you know, even if you're really bullish on it, you would have said it was mediocre. Um, if you were bearish, you would have said it was a terrible IPO um, in the sense that there was very little marketing of it. It was in an industry, at least at the time in January 2021, um, that many people didn't like. It was in a niche in the market that many didn't like. Um, keep in mind, this is the same time um, that you're having GameStop um, going through the upside. And a lot of the hedge funds that originally were going to participate in this IPO ended up pulling out. Um, you know, this was in the middle of the SPAC bubble at the time. And so um, it was an IPO where, you know, an IPO, um, but it was at a relatively low valuation. Um, and not a lot of investors at the time were interested in it. And so with that backdrop right there, um, initially, actually, by many, it was seen as an undervalued IPO. And what ended up happening in 2021, 2020, or, you know, 2021 going into the beginning of 2022, is that you saw rates skyrocket. And basically, Zim's uh, model is to go ahead and um, lease out the, um, lease these ships um, you know, at a fixed rate um, for a certain amount of time. And they go ahead and they, um, you know, go into the freight market and um, they will essentially be collecting the spot freight rate. Um, and they're basically making the spread between the two. And so um, at the time, there was a supply shortage in 2021 and into the first half of 2022. And so Zim was very, very profitable. And so what Zim really turned into, and Zim's management has a policy of paying out um, a vast majority of its free cash flows to, uh, straight to investors via dividend. Um, and so it's a quarterly dividend um, and it's variable. And so really what happened at the time was that you had a company that went ahead and got public at a, you know, a, a relatively low valuation um, just due to the way that it went public. Um, and also at the same time, you had earnings going crazy to the upside. And so it had a very, very low P.E. ratio. And then combined with that, you've got a very, very high dividend yield. And your average retail investor, um, oftentimes when they're screening for stocks, they just go onto a stock screener and they'll plug in, you know, I want a P.E. ratio below 3x. I want a dividend yield of fill in the blank, right? And they want a really high dividend yield and a really low P.E. ratio because that's what they think brings value. Um, and so it really led to a situation where, Many retail investors were starting to buy into Zim in 2021, first half of 2022, and it really peaked around, um, you know, in about uh, Q3 of 2022, it, um, it was around where it peaked. 
And it was basically because it was really just a quick yield play, right? If you see a stock and it has, and you don't know, you're not the wiser, right? You don't know um, the risks that are involved. And all you do is you look at it and you see it's got a triple digit yield on it and you just go ahead and you buy it. And that's what a lot of these retail investors did. Um, they saw a low PE ratio. They saw a high yield. They thought it was a deep value investment. And so they just went ahead and they bought into it. Now, of course, we're on the other side of this. Um, inflation has slowed down. Supply chain issues are starting to fix themselves. These rates are starting to come down. And so now that we're on the other side of this, we've seen Zim stock uh, crash very, very significantly, uh, close to 80% or so. And this is because um, the very investors that got into this because it had a low P.E. ratio, because the yield was high, um, really not understanding the risks that they were taking, uh, thinking it was a deep value investment, not understanding that the dividend is variable and that at any time, you know, when the earnings collapse, the dividend will be cut to zero. Um, They didn't really understand that, I don't believe. Um, And I remember going through Seeking Alpha um, about a year back. And I would actually look at the articles on Zim and it would be strong buy, strong buy, 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 strong buy. And it just seemed like everything was positive sentiment right there. And they really were not um, there was there wasn't a long um, amongst not just seeking alpha contributors, but your average retail investor and even, you know, some institutional investors um, or sell side analysts. Right. They really didn't understand the downside risk that could be possible here. And so it really quickly turned into a value trap when the earnings started to collapse. And then eventually, most recently in the last quarter, you've had the dividend get cut to zero. And so there's not going to be any returns at all to shareholders. And earnings will likely continue to stay negative for the next two years or so um, because of how low rates have gone. And they're likely not to go higher because we're likely um, not to get back into these supply chain issues. And so you've got extremely low rates and you've got, you know, what was first, you know, it turned into a value trap and then, it you know, the, the dividend trap because the dividend got to zero. And so shareholders that are still here are left holding the bag um, down significantly on their investments. And they're sitting there going, well, you know, I initially bought this because I thought it was cheap because of the low P.E. ratio. Um, now, though, that's gone due to the fact that the company reported negative quarterly earnings and will likely continue to. And um, the dividend has been cut. So there's no direct return of capital to shareholders. And so they're sort of sitting there as bag holders wondering what to do. Um, And basically, you know, when I wrote that article, I said that you have to pay attention to why shareholders buy into a stock, because that will then tell you why they will sell. And so if, you know, shareholders are buying in, um, thinking that it's an easy yield play or they're buying in because... Um, you know, it's got a low valuation to it, but they really don't understand, um, you know, why it is the way it is. Um, and then it, it eventually when it all collapses, um, they're, they're going to start selling pretty quickly. And I think that's the situation we're in with Zim right now. I appreciate that, Julian. Happy to hear your thoughts and happy to hear any kind of points that you would have directly to respond to uh, anything that Ramil said in addition. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I think very similarly, um, as Ramil mentioned, how um, Zim was some of the risk of their business models underappreciated in terms of how they're remaining earning a spread, whereas their high dividends, high earnings might have implied a greater amount of safety. It's kind of similar to how in the tech sector, there were some some fintech names that were generating very, very strong growth due to the zero interest rate environment. Some some names to note might be like Open Door or maybe more popular Upstart. Right. Um, these were names that were able to generate large profits, large growth when interest rates were low because they could kind of, uh, you know, generate strong spreads by lending. And they were seeing strong demand at the lower interest rate. But when the interest rates rose, uh, they were unable to sustain any amount of demand, let alone 
uh, fund fund their platforms. And Zim, Zim is uh, obviously it's not direct correlation with interest rates, but with freight rates having plummeted, um, there they've seen they've somehow become turned from becoming a cash flow monster to not <laughs> to generating zero profits. Right? I think I think and one data point I can mention is that. There's a definitely a deteriorating interest in Zim stock, just noted by the articles I've posted. Uh, the, the recent article I posted where I mentioned how I sold my very tiny position in the stock has generated a lot less interest compared to just a year ago when Zim was still paying a very large dividend. So it does appear that probably a lot a large number of the investors who are in Zim integrated for that dividend probably have already bailed on the stock. And what would you well first Ramil anything that you want to say in directly to that? Yeah, yeah. So um in regards to the last point right there that was made that um the investors are already starting to bail on the stock. I do agree with that cuz I came out um with my bearish article um just about like 3 weeks ago or so and already since then we're down significantly. Um, and oftentimes what ends up happening with a lot of these plays is basically you have a long period of time where just nothing happens. Um, it literally just chops sideways. You know, Zim could go down to $10 and it just chops sideways at $10 um, for quite literally the next you know 18 months. Oftentimes that's what happens with a lot of these plays um, because those who are bullish um, who got into the value trap, they end up selling. Um, but the ones that want to continue to hold, um, of course, like the insiders that are, of course, you know, holding their equity or those who are long-term value investors, they continue to hold. Um, and, you know, there's already a pretty high short interest of, you know, 25% um, last I checked. And so, you know, in my opinion, um, you know, I agree with that view right there. And basically, I think um, at this point, it's basically just going to be, you know, a stock that's just going to, you know, trade sideways for very, very long periods of time um, where we could just see a chopping, you know, at around $10 or so um, chopping sideways, um, you know, for the next 18 months or two years um, with very little volume or movement either way. What would you each say if you had to take a more bullish position or say, that things are really going to, you know, click on all cylinders for Zim going forward. How how might that look? Let's say taking the other side of things. Yeah, I think that. Um, I mean, obviously, as we saw during the pandemic, if if freight rates were to soar again, I think Zim is disproportionately um, exposed to the upside here. Uh, it definitely could see earnings uh, soar dramatically. Management has shown a willingness to return cash to shareholders. Um, so, I mean, clearly this stock could take off if business um, conditions improve. But as Ramil just pointed, I think perhaps an underappreciated aspect here may be the idea that this does have the potential to be a mean stock. Um, of course, as I should emphasize, I don't have a position in Zim integrated, so I'm not trying to make an investment thesis based on the potential for bringing a meme stock. But look, this is a name that has high short interest. Um, I mean... To a retail investor that's perhaps not looking too closely, they might come with the view that this has a net cash balance sheet. Uh, if you ignore the very hefty lease liabilities, um, and this is a name that once you know generate a lot of money. So I mean, it's not you know unrealistic to expect uh, Zim to generate some kind of um, you know meme following uh, similar to maybe a GameStop or an AMC. Uh, but, but, but again, I mean, those may not be more bullish cases. Those might be just more um, potential risks to any bearish or short, you know, positions. Yeah, yeah. So I actually agree with a lot of that. And so I'll, let me add on to some things here. 
Um, so, of course, you know, freight rates go higher. That's very obviously bullish for Zen. Um, I, you know, I don't believe that's going to happen anytime soon. I don't believe, you know, Julian thinks that's going to happen um, to the point where, you know, it would be very bullish for Zim. But, you know, if for whatever reason we're wrong on that, then, of course, you know, Zim would do well. Um, and, you know, there is a high short interest right there. And so there could be a short covering rally. Um, the area where I find, you know, a lot of the initial investors that were just holding on to this for the yield, of course, they sold. Who is still holding on, though? Um, the ones that are still holding on right now tend to be a lot of these deep value investors, right? So I've seen a lot of investors say, oh, well, you know, I'm not concerned with the yield right now. I'm not concerned with the P.E. ratio, you know, the fact that earnings have gone um, negative. You know, I'm not concerned with that. I'm a deep value investor. I can hold on for five years, right? You know, I can hold on for long periods of time. And I think this has a lot of value right here um, because being undervalued, if you look at some basic metric like price to book. And, you know, my response to that would be yes, um, you know, from a, just a traditional, you know, valuation method. Yes, you know, from a price to book perspective, it is being undervalued. But I would say in this environment, um, valuation for Zim really doesn't matter, right? There's no point in buying a company below its value if it, if it doesn't produce any cash flow. And that's basically the position Zim is in. Um, if you're unprofitable, it doesn't matter how low your price to book ratio is um, if you're unprofitable. Um, and so that's the main thing that I hear from a lot of these bulls is, well, you know, the value is really low, right? And there's a right price for everything. And this is a deep value play right here. And eventually it will turn itself around, you know, whether it's two years from now, three years from now, its earnings are going to go up. Um, and, you know, it's a deep value play right now. The, P, uh, the PB ratio is extremely low um, and they've got enough cash on the balance sheet to weather this through. And you know what? They're probably right in the long term. Uh, but, you know, you got to remember that you're letting go of the opportunity cost for the next you know, two to three years if you, if you plan on doing that. Um, and just also the fact that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, and I actually gave an analogy um, inside my article um, that I had written on this in regards to the price to book ratio and why I really don't care what the PB ratio of a stock is if it's unprofitable. Um, and, and, you know, what I basically said is, I, you know, if I were to gift you two things and I give you a choice between these two, one of them is I'll give you a million dollars worth of cash right now. Um, it's going to be, you know, either cash or T-bills, something liquid. Okay, you have something that is a cash or cash equivalent on one side, or I'll give you $5 million of, let's say, super illiquid, highly specialized equipment. The issue is you can't find a buyer for that $5 million worth of equipment. So which one would you rather have? Um, initially, $5 million does sound better than a million dollars, but what you aren't taking into account is the fact that, okay, sure, uh, you got $5 million right there on paper, uh, but how are you, how is a shareholder actually going to be able to extract something from that? Right? How are you going to be able to extract something from $5 million worth of illiquid assets? And the reality is it doesn't matter if a company has a low PB ratio. If the shareholder doesn't get a benefit from that low PB ratio, it just doesn't matter, right? So I don't really care that, you know, yeah, Zim is trading at, um, you know, 70% discount or even higher than that at this point to book value. It just doesn't really matter because what benefit are you as a shareholder getting, right? You're not getting any dividends in your pocket. You're not getting any stock buybacks. The, the cash on the balance sheet is not going into your pocket. It's not going to benefit you, you know, in, in the short to medium term in any way. Yes, in the long run, um, it might help Zim and, you know, they're going to weather through the storm. Um, but in the short run, you know, using valuation metrics and ratios like this, like a price to book ratio, to say that it's undervalued really doesn't matter. Um, you know, all that matters at the end of the day, especially with a stock like Zim that has a focus on return of capital to shareholders, is what is going in your pocket as a shareholder. And the fact that it's going at, you know, a low PB ratio, in my opinion, it just doesn't really matter right here. 
Um, and so, you know, that is though the main thing that I hear from the bulls right here are these deep value investors who just look at it and say it's undervalued. And yes, on paper, it is undervalued. In reality, I don't think that you should be buying a company that's undervalued um, if it's going to stay unprofitable for the next two years. Yeah, just to add to that, um, I think, I mean, as, as an investor in tech stocks, I think I'm very, I do, I do quite frequently invest in unprofitable stocks, but there's definitely a clear distinction between on the typical secular growth story that I might invest in versus Zim, whereas the longer time goes on, um, in theory, those secular growth names, they might realize operating leverage and then they become more profitable. Kind of, or more importantly, their fate's a little bit more in their own, uh, they, they have more control of their future. But whereas in the case of Zim Integrated, they're, they're not quite a secular growth story at play here. They're just more of a commodity play based on freight rates. So if, in other words, if freight rates were to stay the same and the time and more time goes on, there isn't really a reason to believe that they will become more profitable or be able to change their profit picture. Uh, in fact, actually, I think Romo might have understated the, the bearish picture there if, you know, things stay um, the way it is. Actually, I think things will get worse and worse because they'll just keep accumulating more and more debt as time goes on. So actually, yeah, actually, time is not really the friend of shareholders here. Uh, whereas you would have expected time to be the friend of shareholders if this was a typical dividend growth stock, because you would just keep, you know, their earnings might go up, you might get dividends that you could reinvest. That's it's kind of the opposite at play here. Um, but in regards to the price to book value, I, I would say that, uh, yes, I, I have noticed, especially among the because I was interested in shipping stocks before the pandemic, before Zim integrated made uh, shipping a little more mainstream. I, I think it deserves some credit there. Um, prior, prior to all of this uh, fun, uh, investing in shipping stocks, yeah, as Ramil mentioned, was more of a deep value kind of mentality. Or, But it's very niche. That The main idea there, um, if you were to follow any of the notable you know, shipping investors, is they tend to look at book value or more specifically, I think it's called scrap value or like the market rates for like if you were to maybe sell off a ship. And then the the, the idea, it will be kind of similar to how um, maybe Eddie Lampert or someone might have justified investing in a Macy's or something, saying something like, oh, the real estate value is worth more than the stock. So even if the business sucks, I mean, you got some downside protection because the book value or the replacement value is much higher than where the value is. And... So, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, in, if if things are working out properly, then that could be a catalyst for value. If an activist investor can come and maybe force a sale of assets to return cash to shareholders, that actually is, I mean, that a, a big discount to the price to uh, market value of your assets, um, that would be a good undervaluation indicator. But what the reason why I did not invest in shipping stocks before the pandemic um, was because I was of the view that, and I and, and I guess I'm still of the view now that these management teams are not really focused on necessarily dra- extracting value based on that price to book value. So even though they might be able to um, generate real immediate shareholder returns by selling off, you know, certain you know vessels or you know. Uh, things like that, and then just using that cash to repurchase shares. They they tend not to really do that materially. I know I know some of the lessers, uh, basically the companies that would lease these ships to, um, or charter these ships to uh, Zim, like Danaus. They have done some share repurchases in the past, but in my view, 
based on how cheap they are, based on earnings and based on、uh, price to book, it's very modest. You know, you you would think based on how cheap these names appear on paper,、um, they would actually be closing up shop and just selling their ships, repurchasing stock, but they're not. And okay, so look, the <laughs> the optimists would be like, oh, that's not an issue. They're still cheap.、Uh, you know, cheap is cheap. But the cynist,、uh, the the realist. Uh, we'll probably point out that that that's an issue, right?、Um, because at the end of the day, you don't necessarily have cash access to that investment. As Ramon mentioned, that five million dollars that's locked up, you don't have control of that. It's merely management that has control, and how management decides to run the business will impact what kind of returns you get as a shareholder. So, if management is more focused on the way they put it is investing in growth,、um, if they're more focused investing in growth in a cyclical business, they're not going to be Selling off their ships and taking advantage of the price to book value discount, which means, as Ramal mentioned, that that price to book value discount tends to be kind of meaningless、um, as long as the people in charge really don't seem to care about it. Right, right. Yeah, I agree with that.、Um, you know, when it comes to、um, the lessers, I think that on their side. Um, there's sort of two aspects to it. Obviously, number one,、um, there's there's the aspect that、um, they want to try and manage their risk, and they just saw what happened with a lot of companies like Zim, and they're well aware、um, that there's risk right there that's involved.、Um, and obviously, the lessers are they're they're locking in rates, unlike you know Zim that's on the other side of this.、Um, but they see the risk that's involved, and so I think that、um, they're overly risk averse, and they're keeping a lot of cash on their balance sheet.、Um, so maybe the Optimists would look at it from that perspective.、Uh, the pessimists, though, would、uh, would probably say though that management isn't aligned with shareholders in a lot of these companies、um, inside this industry.、Um, and you know, I would agree with that.、Um, a lot of companies, and it's not just this industry, but I do think、um, it's a lot of industries. But any sort of industry like this or anything that's commodity related, I tend to see it more over there, where the company is more focused on empire building. What I mean by empire building is that let's say you know you're a CEO of a company. How does the CEO of a company,、uh, the CEO of a company's compensation, get calculated? It's really a calculation based on the market cap of the company, not necessarily how much、um, how much the shareholders are making in returns. So you know you could be the CEO of a hundred billion dollar market cap company. And even if your return to shareholders is not that good, you're still going to get a higher compensation than、um, the CEO of a billion-dollar market cap、uh, market cap company who has really good return of capital to shareholders. And that's just because of the fact that the company is bigger,、um, and so you know, a bigger company will give you a larger comp right there. And so. Oftentimes, management teams are focused on empire building. They're focused on let's just build a bigger business because at the end of the day,、um, that's what helps them.、Um, and return of capital to shareholders.、Um, if they, you know, if the management team doesn't own a lot of stock inside the company,、um, dividends don't help them because that's cash going out the door.、Um, stock buybacks, yeah, that's going to help the shareholder, but it doesn't really help, you know, the management team. And so I do think that there is a question right there of how much、um, are management teams in this industry aligned with shareholders, and are they willing to return capital to shareholders via stock buybacks when the stock looks cheap,、um, or via dividends? And dividends, really, the way I view it, it's like an optional stock buyback in that you can take the dividend, reinvest it, and buy more shares, or you don't have to if you don't want to, right? So it's more of an optional stock buyback. And so dividends are really probably the most favorable way of going about it. Um, but you know there is that question right there of、um, is management aligned with shareholders? And I'd also add on to that: even if you think the management is doing a good job, 
with Zim, there is a there's a big issue with um with Zim's you know Zim's business model, the way that it operates. There's very little you as an operator inside the business can do to change the current situation Zim is in. So let's say that, you know if you put yourself in the shoes of Zim man- uh, management right now. Um, you know, over the next two years, you're probably going to be unprofitable. So there's really not much you can change about that. You know, you can't control freight rates. Um, so, you know, you're at the mercy of the market right there. Yeah, sure. You could try and cut down on some costs, but your biggest cost is the fact that you leased out all these ships. Um, and so now it's too late to, you know, you can't do anything about that now. And so your biggest cost is there no matter what. And your revenue, um, which is these freight rates, that's at the mercy of the market. Um, you know, you have no control over freight rates. And so I think Zim's management is also in a position right now where they have very little ability to maneuver in that there's very little that they can do in the current situation um, to change what's going to happen, right? You know, they can just sit there and try and cut their costs, but cutting the cost um, is like putting a bandage over a tumor, right? It doesn't solve the root cause of the problem. You're just sort of hiding the problem right there by trying to cut some costs, but you're really not getting down to the root cause of the problem. So they can try and cut some costs, uh, but otherwise, they can't do much else. You know, the revenue is going to be what freight rates are. They can't control freight rates. Um, and their biggest cost, which is the fact that they leased out um, these ships, um, you know, they, they obviously already leased it out, right? So it's, they can't do anything about that. So they're really in a position where they're between like a rock and hard place where it's like, what do we do at this point, right? They can't, in my opinion, really do much. And, um, you know, and the only other play right there that is with Zim stock, right? Um, you can't really do a stock buyback because, uh, you know, Zim stock is a high risk play right now um, and it's unprofitable. So would you really want to buy back stock of an unprofitable company? Can't do that. OK, you know, do you want to go ahead and dilute the stock after the stock has already dropped a lot? You probably don't. And it's going to freak out a lot of shareholders and they're going to ask why in the world are they doing that? So you can't really do much with the stock from a capital allocation perspective. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the, you know, the operations of the company itself, you can't really do much about it. You're at the mercy of the market. So I think shareholders need to understand that if you're in the position of management, they really can't do much inside this uh, situation right now. Um, you know, they're basically at the mercy of the market. You know, freight rates go up, you know, they win. But, you know, if they go lower, um, you know, it, it impacts their bottom line pretty heavily. And there's just not a lot management can do right here about this situation. Yeah, I think that's um, that's reasonable. I think investors, um, they do. There's a strong corollary between um, what's happening here with Zim Integrated as well as, you know, what happened with uh, energy stocks, uh, like specifically oil, gas, oil stocks uh, prior to the pandemic, you know, from ever since oil prices crashed in 2016, um, from, you know, for the next, you know, four years, oil stocks basically um, just, they didn't, I wouldn't even, I would call it sideways, uh, calling it friendly because they really started trending downward and just stayed really low, right? These names, um, a lot of them didn't really have earnings, you know, so they were, it was really hard to value them, but still at the same time, you know, there was the potential that, um, oil prices would go up. So that's the reason why they didn't go all the way to zero. But the idea, the, the idea is that there wasn't really much valuation support, keeping these from just heading lower. And there's definitely the risk that Zim falls under the same fate as well. Um, and also just adding to this idea of, you know, um, perhaps uh, management not being aligned with shareholders. Um, I, I just checked uh, the last time I covered Danaus, that's that, um, that lesser DAC. I covered them last year in September. And in that report, I had mentioned how they're, um, so if you're a shareholder in the stock DAC, um, you know, you, you have um, ownership 
of those profits as they lease these uh, ships out to to the to lessees like Sim Integrated. Um, but that that company, their man, they their operations are run by another company called the Now Shipping uh, because. I mean, so this is not really like a real estate landlord tenant kind of situation because even though, even though Denaus would lease the ships out, you know, to the um, to lessees, they would they'll still be uh, they'll still have to cover the cost of operating, you know, the ships. Um, because it's very interesting. Whereas the charters are really more of a financial financial agreement for the profits there. Um, but so this Denaus shipping is again it's owned by the same insiders of Denaus, but they charge a management fee that grows or shrinks based on the size of the fleet. So in other words, you know, the same insiders running the company of Danaus, they are incentivized to grow the fleet, you know, so the, I mean, yeah, so there some some investors will point that point out that the management owns a large stake in this in the company. Typically in these situations that tends to be the case. And by by typically I mean like if anyone's ever invested in a external real estate investment trust uh, this is totally different you know um but it's a very uh similar concept um where there's the great potential for management to be not aligned with shareholders just because they're more incentivized to grow their salaries versus um you know drive a stronger a higher stock price so that that could in part be explaining why these management teams are not in a big rush you know to uh sell off their fleet and repurchase stock yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And um, I don't think I'm going to continue to talk about that because I think we've killed that one enough. And, we, you know, we emphasize right there um, that management is not oftentimes aligned with shareholders. Um, in regards to one of the things right here, you know, I think we're talking about macro um, and just, you know, freight rates and the fact that um, freight rates are really going to determine where this company goes. One of the mistakes I see shareholders make, um, especially with companies like this that are cyclical, um, because, you know, it depends obviously on the company that you're looking at. I know you look at, you usually look at, you know, a lot of tech companies and such. Um, and so, you know, that's not going to be, you know, cyclical in the same way that a company like this is. Um, but whenever you're looking at a lot of commodity type companies, or any sort of cyclical companies, you have to keep in mind that, you know, basically the two only drivers that really matter are number one, macro, and number two, the quantitative aspect of things. So what do I mean by this? Um, number one, macro drives everything. And what I mean by this is that, you know, let me give you an example right here. An example right here is, you know, you could have had, and there were actually some great um, oil and gas companies that had great operators from like the year 2014 to the year 2020. Um, they were like, they're wonderful operators. Uh, but what was, what was the issue from 2014 to 2020? Um, it was the fact that you were inside a bear market in oil and gas. And so even though the operators for these companies were great, um, the stock prices still crash in a big, big way. Like, for example, you know, one that I can pick off off the top of my head is Journey Energy. Um, I mean, it was, it's a very, you know, the guy that runs it, Alex Verge, he is a big, he's one of the biggest insider shareholders inside the company because uh, he's the one who found it. And he took it public in 2014 at the very top of the market. Um, and he's a great operator. But basically from 2014 to 2020, he had this massive tail, uh, this massive headwind that he had to work against as an oil and gas operator, uh, which is a macro environment. 
And so because of that, um, in 2020, his company almost ended up going bankrupt. Um, was, the stock was basically priced for bankruptcy. And basically, um, he was able to negotiate with the lenders um, and able to restructure some things. And from there, you know, they recovered and they're doing quite well right now. Uh, but that's an example of where macro really matters. And the individual, I think, you know, investors, especially, you know, like I said, you know, the sort of devalue investor types, they put far too much emphasis on the micro aspect of things. Like they try and look at the individuals of the company, um, you know, all the qualitative aspects. And what they don't understand is that there's very little that that company has um, that they can control. Um, reality is macro drives everything, right? You can be a terrible uh, tech investor from the year 1996 to 2000, yet you could have been up big time because it was a dot-com bubble. Um, you know, in the sense that just macro is going to drive everything. And so really, that's where the emphasis should be put. And so I know many try and say, well, you know, I think the management team for X, Y, and Z company is great. And, you know, there's the inside the shipping sector and they're talking about it. And, you know, I just say I really don't pay attention to that. The reason I say that is because in the long, you know, it, it really doesn't matter because macro is going to drive everything. And you could also have, you know, you I've, I've seen situations that are the other way around, right? We all know situations, um, uh, one that's sort of overused, um, but, you know, I'll mention it right here um, is like, for example, you know, a bad portfolio manager that did well in uh, 2020 and 2021. Bad, in my opinion, but uh, everybody else has their own opinion. Uh, but like one, for example, is like uh, Kathy Wood, right? Like, you know, she had an 80 percent plus drawdown inside her fund um, buying companies that are oftentimes pre-revenue or if they have revenue are very unprofitable, you know, way overpaying for them, doubling down after the price goes down a lot. Um, just things you're not supposed to do. And, you know, in the long run, her performance has, uh, you know, not done as well as the NASDAQ. But you know what? She did great in uh, uh, late 2020 and in 2021. And so, and she was seen as the darling at the time. And so what it sort of goes to show is that you can be a bad portfolio manager and you can do good um, if the macro is helping you. And it did help her, obviously, at the time. There was a big tech boom. And so, you know, what does that mean for the shipping industry? It means that even if, um, you know, even if you're a great operator, if the macro is terrible, you're, you're going to get wiped out and vice versa, by the way. You know, you can be a terrible operator, but if the macro is wonderful and it's a massive tailwind to you, you're going to benefit from it. And so I think, you know, what investors really have to keep in mind is that with cyclical stocks like this, number one, macro is driving everything. And then number two, when it does come to the individual stock fundamentals, it's really the quantitative side of things that's driving everything. So an example of this is, um, is actually um, there's um, there's something, the magic formula, right? Most investors are familiar with this. Um, and it was Joel Greenblatt who had come out with it. He's a very well-known hedge fund manager. And basically he said that, he would take two things into account inside this magic formula, P-E ratio and return on equity, right? These are the only two things he would take into account. And he would just, you know, list out a bunch of stocks and he would look for the stocks that had the lowest P-E ratio and the highest return on equity, right? Return on equity uh, uh, representing quality and price earnings ratio representing how cheap it is, right? So if you got something at a low P-E, high return on equity, he'd buy it. And he would just list it out and he'd, you know, take the first 30 stocks, um, with the lowest PEs and highest return on equity and literally pay attention to nothing else as part of this formula. That's all he did, no qualitative aspect taken into account. And he would end up making a compound annual growth rate of 30% a year just by doing that. And so what does it go to show right there? And this is especially true with cyclical stocks, that there's really only two things that matter. The, qu the quantitative aspects of the company itself, 
Um, and number two, I think the macro side of things, right? I think that if you can get those two things right with shipping stocks, you can get you know the freight rates right, the macro side of things right, and if you can get the quantitative aspects right, um, you're pretty much hitting a home run. In that, I think a lot of the qualitative things that people like to pay attention to, um, like individual, you know, I, I think investors are putting like far too much emphasis on individual earnings calls and saying, well, earnings said, uh, you know, when there was an earnings call, the management said X, Y, and Z. And I think they're putting too much emphasis onto these things. Um, when in reality, they should just be really paying attention to number one, is the macro environment aligned with me? And number two, um, do, does the quantitative aspect for this company look right? If those two are right, I think the investors are going to have a good time um, and vice versa. Julian, I'm curious why you technically had a, a hold on your Zim article. Um, I think I think if you know one could take any takeaways, you know, from from what happened during the pandemic, especially with the meme stock craze, you know, it could be very dangerous to short to short stocks, even if things look bad. I mean, in the case of Zim integrated, um, yeah, I mean, I think if things were to persist as currently over the next five years, I mean, and the longer it goes, yeah, I mean, things will start looking worse. You know, maybe at some point, you know, the risk of bankruptcy starts to increase um, over time. But at, as it stands right now, you know, it's still in the beginning, you know, the company um, it's still benefited from the fact that it's greatly reduced leverage, you know, during the past couple of years. It's there's there's a little bit of time, you know. There's still some time before things could get really bad, right? So, things are not imminently bad to the point where you know I would be prepared to say, oh, this is a sell. Uh, it's more because you you, you would only the, 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 I I think the more reliable returns from shorting a stock, if there's reliable returns, all it tends to become from tends to come from stocks that are very close to bankruptcy. Or, and have a very clear path to bankruptcy. Uh, but that's just not quite the case here um, as of yet, I think. So what would you each say to investors looking at the shipping sector in general? How are you? I mean, I know that you've, you've spoken about it a, a bit, um, but in general, how would you, how are you each looking at the, the shipping sector? Yeah, sure. So I think um, the most, a, a very important guideline I would have that I don't see talked about a lot is remembering that you know cyclical stocks they don't deserve big multiples. So I mean, you know, with Zim integrated and Denals, and these these are important ones because you know they're two two opposite sides of the spectrum in the shipping industry. But I think they both deserve you know the same treatment. Uh, like for example, with Zim integrated, even yeah, I, I I can see people trying to invest in the stock if they believe you know. Um, you know, freight rates will eventually go up, or especially if they believe freight rates will go up very quickly. You know, it, it's a very appealing trading vehicle for someone with that kind of uh, investment thesis. However, at the same time, it's important to remember that due to how cyclical it is, you know, investors, they're not, or at least they shouldn't be valuing the stock based on like a, a consistent generation of those kind of boom profits. You know, uh, it was very apparent even amidst the bubble, you know, over the last two years, that investors they were very cautious um, with Zim Integrated. They weren't sure when the dividends payments were going to stop. They were they weren't valuing it based on like an annual dividend yield. They were basing it on how much of a dividend payout they would be getting in every single year. Uh, that's going to remain the same, just because you know there isn't any reason to expect freight rates to remain high, uh, you know, for a long period of time. But at the same time, this kind of mindset should also apply to a uh, to the lessers like the Nels, I, I think 
there's I've seen the argument made that you know a stock like DAC or a global shipping lease like GSL they deserve a bigger premium because they're sort of like a landlord in the shipping industry. I I do disagree with that kind of notion. I think that 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 kind of thinking is very dangerous. It would it downplays the risk that the lesser has because I mean think about it. if if your tenants are going uh, are doing poorly at some point that's going to impact the um, you know, the landlord or the lesser as well. We saw this with the mall REITs um, over the past couple of years that I'm at. For a long time, you know, Simon Property Group, that's Dr. Gas SPG, or, you know, Mace Rich, they were trading at cap rates, you know, in 3%, 4%, um, even though their, their tenants were all going bankrupt. A lot of them were going bankrupt, at least. Uh, eventually, you know, starting in 2018, 2019, and of course, during the pandemic, their stocks finally fell down big time and their valuations have never really recovered. So I think uh, if you're going to invest in a name like, you know, Zim or the Naus, it's important to realize they're all cyclical. Um, and I wouldn't say because the Naus is a lesser, it means that you could build a big position in it. I mean, that's going to be the biggest thing I want, you know, listeners to um, take away is that um, I, I'm of the view that the Naus is still quite risky, even though it's lesser. And that um, in a similar way that, I, if you're going to invest in Zim, you're going to keep the position size very small, you know, like 0.1% or even smaller, right? Um, the now deserves, you know, kind of a similar treatment just because of how, um, you know, if things get bad for Zim integrated, then things will also be bad for the because it would imply that at some point, maybe these charters, maybe these charter leases will need to be renegotiated, or maybe, maybe a lot of these lessees are going to not pay pay up on these rates just because they've agreed and contracted these freight rates doesn't mean you know that um bankruptcies don't happen and that those will impact the lessors and eventually also these these rates will get renegotiated at lower prices um yeah so i, I think yeah it, it's just very important uh when trying to frame a bullish thesis to temper your expectations and to make sure that understanding that these are cyclical stocks have that shape how you model the valuations and your expected multiples uh, for these names. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I agree with that. I'm going to add on to that right there. So um, anytime someone's looking at, you know, stock like Zim, um, I would look to go ahead and in a way normalize the earnings. And what I mean by this is that, you know, many went ahead and bought the stock because they looked at it and said, oh, it's got a low PE ratio. Right. And so you just go ahead and they buy it. What they don't understand is that that is very cyclical right there. So try and avoid um, just, you know, blatantly looking at, some sort of a ratio and just based on that going ahead and, you know, saying, well, you know, it looks like it's going for a low valuation, so I'm going to buy it. Um, instead, go ahead and actually, you know, you know, do the math and go through with freight rates um, over a long period of time and say, where are freight rates normally going to be, right? What are my expectations? Let's say if you are a buy and hold investor for this kind of a stock, which is, you know, it's hard to actually be a buy and hold investor for a cyclical stock. But if you are, um, you know, sort of ask yourself, you know, over the next 10 years, where do I expect freight rates to be? And, you know, you can look at a chart going back in the past and, you know, based on that, you know, say, OK, you know, here's where I expect it to be, you know, going out into the future. And, you know, based on that, you know, take different price points uh, for freight rates and plug it into the revenue for Zim and basically do a stress test where you ask yourself, OK, you know, how low do the freight rates have to go for Zim um, for Zim to be a break even? How low does it have to go for Zim to start burning a significant amount of cash? Uh, how high does it have to go um, for Zim to have, you know, a, a decent P.E. ratio, right? Whatever that is in your mind right there that you're looking for, you know, in, in plug in different points right there. And basically normalize the earnings. And so instead of just looking at recent earnings, which are very, very volatile, 
take freight rates over a longer period of time, plug it into the revenue for Zen, and actually ask yourself, you know, if the freight rates were to get to this level, which I would expect them to, you know, in an economic downturn, what would happen, right? And, you know, plug in different scenarios and basically play out different scenarios in your head of sort of the worst case scenario right here, um, or, you know, what the best case scenario is, what the highest probability scenario is, and play all that out right there. Um, and, you know, I think that's important to do on any sort of cyclical name um, that is influenced by an outside factor, right? So it doesn't even have to be shipping. It can be something like a commodity producer. Um, you know, a commodity producer is impacted by, you know, outsized um, by, you know, an outside factor, which is, you know, the commodity itself and the price of that commodity. And so you want to plug in, you know, different prices right there to try and normalize to what you think in the long run freight race will be. And ask yourself, you know, if the worst case scenario plays out here, will this shipping stock have enough cash on their balance sheet to go ahead and weather a downturn? Um, and you want to ask yourself that question right there if you're a buy and hold investor. Um, so that's how I'd look at it if I was a buy and hold investor. If I'm, you know, someone like myself, you know, I tend to trade on macro um, over a time frame that might be as short as, you know, six months, as long as two years. OK, so I'm not, you know, buying and holding for long periods of time. Someone like me is you, uh, simply using this more as a you know macro play. In that case, of course, you know, it's all based upon where your views on the macro environment are. Uh, but that's really the way that I think you got to look at it. You got to ask yourself first, am I you know, going to be trading this or am I going to actually be investing in this long run? Uh, if I'm going to be trading this, it's really just a pure play macro um, play on where freight rates are. If I'm going to be investing in this long run, um, go ahead and actually adjust out financials and make, you know, look at the financials and adjust it out for what the potential risks here are. And basically stress test it to its worst case scenario and ask yourself in the worst case scenario, will I, you know, how much will I lose? Um, and, you know, sort of the rule, you know, that Warren Buffett has is rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Um, and so if you are that buy and hold investor, you really want to stress test this and see what the worst case scenario is. Well, Ramil and Julian, I really appreciate you both coming on. I feel like there's so much uh, food for thought uh, about Zim, also about the sector, but I think also about kind of smarter ways to look at investing and sharper ways to look at investing. All articles referenced from Seeking Alpha, you can find it on the show notes below the episode description of this podcast. And transcript of this episode and all podcast episodes are available on Seeking Alpha as well. Thanks for joining us. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. And we'll see you soon with a new episode.